On this episode of AppTalk, we head to Stockholm to go inside Flight Radar 24. We sit down with co-founder Mikja Robertson to learn how FR24 got started, and we talk to Chief Technology Officer Sean Atkinson to learn more about how FR24 works. We also check in on a volcano in Bali, the world's largest turboprop aircraft, and our favorite new airline, June. Hello and welcome to a special episode 20 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik and I am literally here in the flesh, in the flesh, in Stockholm, Sweden with Jason Rabinowitz. Hello. Welcome to episode 20. Where are we? Well, I just said we're in Stockholm, Sweden. But where in Stockholm? Ah, well, we're in the economy class conference room, which is a glorified closet, really, but it has a window, so that's important. And we're recording today from the offices of Flight Radar 24. That's right. We've ventured to Sweden for a little bit of elucidation as to what we do here and how we do it. So a little bit later in the show, we're going to talk to the co-founders of Flight Radar 24, Olof and Mikja, about how this whole business got started and how it works. And then we're going to talk a little bit later in the episode, we're going to talk to to our CTO, Sean Atkinson, about how Flight Radar 24 actually works. So we'll, we'll get a little more in-depth than it's magic and, you know, there might actually be some technical talk involved. Some technical talk. Uh, we, we'll put up a warning on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, not, a, not, not an explicit warning, but a, a technical warning. I still warning say it's all witchcraft. Bit. There's a little bit of witchcraft involved. That's That's certainly true. But... First things first, let's talk about a few things that have been going on in the aviation world this week. Everyone's been following. I want to say everyone because I've been riveted to it, so I'm projecting You equal here. everyone. Yeah, I'm projecting here. The Antonov AN-22, which if you haven't heard the aircraft, will play you a sound of the aircraft. Okay, isn't that the coolest thing in the world? So I didn't actually get to hear it just now because, you know, magic of editing, we'll put that in later. But did I spoil that for you? But I listened to it last week and it's pretty freaking amazing. The sound it makes, it has four counter-rotating... Eight counter-rotating... Eight, eight counter-rotating props. And any counter-rotating aircraft sounds ridiculous. And counter-rotating basically means that for each engine it has two sets of propellers that counter rotate against each other i think is how to best explain that the one rotates clockwise, clockwise the, the other rotates counterclockwise and the sound it makes is just absolutely ridiculous and this is the largest prop aircraft in the it world? is the an-22 is the largest turboprop aircraft in the world so what was it doing why was it flying well like all good charter cargo airlines they were helping out another oh. airline a Thomas Cook A330 in Hoglin, Cuba, had some engine trouble. And so they they flew over to Manchester. Well, they were doing something else in between Prestwick and Helsinki. I, I'm not sure what was in the plane there. But then they came back to Manchester and flew Manchester, Gander, down to Hoglin for... I'm mispronouncing that, but I believe it would... Probably. Yeah, that's okay. Close enough. We'll get there eventually. But the moral of the story is they were carrying an engine for an A330. So we're recording a bit today, the, the 4th of December, and they're on their way back later in the day, and they should be back in Ukraine later this week. So that'll be a fun thing 
to follow a few more flights this week. They're going to go from Cuba back to Gander, back to Manchester, and then back to Kiev in, in Ukraine. Long way to go to deliver a single engine. Well, you got to bring the broken one back too, I guess. That's true. So the, they'll do that. But I mean, just the we'll post some video in the show notes of the the plane flying over over Manchester. I mean, it's just that incredible sound. I mean, it's even more incredible when sounds when more you like see it. a fleet of aircraft than a single aircraft. It, it really does. It, it really, really does. So we also have in the news this week, or continuing in the news this week, is the, the eruption of Mount Agung in Bali. Is that how you pronounce it? I hope so. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I, I honestly don't know we're if gonna, it's right or wrong. We're going to have to start a second podcast of how to pronounce the words that we're Let's mispronouncing. not go to Iceland then. No. But so the the eruption didn't initially affect the airport's but as the, the ash ash cloud spread, it closed the, the Denpasar Airport in Bali for days. A, a few days. Days. Yeah. And so they're they're getting back into into the swing of things. But I guess now the warning is that the eruption could increase and close the airport yet again. Which is bad news. It is bad news. But you know what's worse news? Mm-hmm. Flying through an ash cloud. Yes, you shouldn't do that. You, you, you definitely shouldn't. You shouldn't do that. If you fly a modern jet-powered aircraft into an ash cloud, it will break the engines, and they will stop working pretty quickly. What was it, BA-9? BA-9. Back in, in what year was this? Was that 80? 1982, 82. June 24th. A BA-747-200 back in the day. Before they really had any way to, I guess, detect ash clouds or really knew how just bad they were to fly yeah. into, a BA-747-200 flew right into an ash cloud and promptly broke all four engines, which is not something you want to have happen. So basically, when you fly into an ash cloud, the ash hits the hot engines and almost solidifies onto the core of the engine, I believe, and kind of just kills it temporarily. Yeah. And until it has time to solidify, cool down, and basically break off. I know I'm probably going to yell that for being wrong in some way, but I, that's my grasp of it. But the captain... Eric the, Moody. Captain Eric, Eric Moody, Moody had one of the most epic quotes of any pilot on any aircraft ever. And Ian, read it out loud here. Okay. So they're flying through the ash cloud, and the captain gets... Gets on the public address system and and addresses the passengers after all four engines have failed. And they think they're going to have to ditch into the ocean at this point. But they're working on the problem. And and he comes on the public address system and says to a, a cabin full, a 747 cabin full of people, Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. We have a small problem. All four engines have stopped. We are doing our damnedest to get them going again. I trust you are not in too much distress. See, you didn't say it with a British accent, so it's not quite as calming as a British accent would would have had. But I don't <laughs> think all four engines stop working is a small problem. I think that's as big a problem as you can possibly have on a 747. But thankfully, they flipped enough knobs and, and they got, I think, two of the engines working. I of believe... Two, two and yeah. then all uh, three or four. Yeah, I, I think they, they eventually got three going again and then continued on and then turned out their their windshield was so sandblasted by the the ash cloud that they couldn't even see where they were flying so they had to land on instrument and basically glare yeah so, so it, the whole story is ridiculous and don't rather fly incredible. into an ash cloud that's so the moral the moral of the story is absolutely do not fly into an ash cloud and and we'll post a 
a link in the show notes to kind of the whole story because we didn't do it justice. And you have to read the sequence of events and, and how things worked out. And like all aviation events, the real moral of the story is that it helped meteorologists and pilots and, and just better understand what ash clouds do to aircraft and why they're they're so important to avoid, which is why when the volcano erupted in Iceland in, was it 2010? Something like that. It yeah. shut down Atlantic flights for days. Days. So that that's, you know, one of those things that a bad thing led to increased knowledge, which is always good. Reopened Iraqi airspace. Yes. How about that? Middle Eastern shortcut. So in 2014, with kind of some issues with ISIS and other threats to aircraft in the area, airlines stopped flying over Iraqi airspace. With good cause. With good cause. So that was one of the the outcomes three years ago. Recently, United Emirates aircraft, so basically Emirates and Fly Dubai. And Etihad. And, well, and, and I have started flying over Iraqi airspace again. And it's a shorter route. So looking at the map, and, and we'll put a kind of a, a description map in, in the show notes so you can look at it and kind of follow along. But but basically, it's it's not incredibly shorter, depending on where you're going. But from what we're understanding is it's it's now much cheaper than flying over Iran. Yeah, as far as the overflight. overfly permits are a uh, lot cheaper. Expensive, more expensive in Iran. So we've got that to sweeten the deal to bring flights back to Iraq. No, thank you. Well, I mean, the FAA has been working on a, a revised kind of procedure. So we'll, we'll see if that was supposed to go into effect in October, I think, but didn't. Because you know, no U.S. Airlines going to take them up on that. So, well, no U.S. Airlines flies in the area. Right. So it, it's kind of a moot point. But, even, well, I guess it might be a cargo issue. Even so, if you're a, a U.S. passenger airline, you're not going to fly over Iraq. If you have a technical issue and you need to make an emergency landing, you're not going to want to land anywhere in Iraq. So why they're not even going to put themselves in that position. It's a moot point for the U.S. Well, I mean, I can only say what the FAA is thinking about doing. I guess so. I, I can't speak to the wisdom of it or, mm-hmm. or its utility. No. Nope. But that's what they're doing. So that's what's going on there. It's an interesting story, I thought. Yes. So your, your United flight will not be stopping to refuel in Baghdad anytime soon. So That's a fair point. Yeah. All right. How about we take a quick break? Sure. And we will come back with Olaf and Mikia and talk about how Flight Radar 24 got started. Sound good? It does sound good. We'll be right back. Joining us now is Michael Robertson who is one of the co-founders of Flight Radar 24. Ulov was going to try and join us, but he unfortunately wasn't able to, so we'll settle for 50% of the co-founding duo. <laughs> Mickey, thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you. So tell us how Flight Radar 24 grew from two people and a few receivers to over 16,000 receivers and dozens of employees. Tell us how things got started. So yeah, me and Olaf installed the first two receivers in Stockholm about 10 years ago. And we we put the screenshots from the SPS-1, as the first receiver was called, on a web page. And it got very popular very fast. And people from 
Europe and Scandinavia started to contact us to ask how we did this. And, and we started to send out receivers to initially Sweden, later Norway and then Poland. And after about a year or two, we had about 10 receivers. And at that time, we found out a way to, to get the data out from the SBS-1 receiver and put all the data into a database. So in 2009, we were able to plot everything on a Google map instead of the screenshots from, from SBS-1. And then it became even more popular. So, so we started to send out this software to people all around Europe and later the rest of the world. So the network kind of expanded from, from Scandinavia on out. And then at what point did you decide, you know, because this began as kind of a, a side project. Yeah, we were running a price comparison service on the, for the Swedish market. And this was like an easy search engine optimization project to get more links to, to this price comparison service. But then the flight tracking became much bigger thing that, that, this, that the price comparison. <laughs> so we had to put it on, on, on a separate domain as a separate service. And it, this was in 2009 when, when we got this database and, and started to draw everything on, on Google Maps. So at what point did you realize that it was becoming bigger than the price comparison site? Or, or did it, I mean, did were the people saying, you know, we're coming for for the the flight tracking instead? Or? Yeah. So so in 2009, it started to become, this flight rate 24 started to become bigger than Swedish price comparison. And then in April 2010, we, we had the Icelandic ash cloud. And that was the first time that we got media coverage. So... so Many of the biggest TV stations were showing how the air traffic disappeared over Europe. Mm-hmm. So in one day in in April 2010, we got like four million visitors. So uh, one of the the biggest moments in in your early history was literally a map with no planes yes, on it. That's yes, exactly. all sorts of ironic. <laughs> yeah, I th- I think we used to track like before the ash cloud like about 1,000 aircraft over Europe. And during the Ash Cloud, when, when media started to show the map, we had like seven, eight aircraft uh, over like wow. Spain or, or Italy. And that was actually quite good luck because we had quite bad server capacity back then. So if you would have 1,000 aircraft, we wouldn't be able to serve that to 4 million visitors. But just because we only had seven aircraft, <laughs> we could serve it to, to all these 4 million visitors. But after that, we, we realized that this is like, there is a big potential going global with this. At what point did you did you kind of make the decision to to move over and say okay now we're going to try and go from you know tracking flights in in Europe or, or Scandinavia to let's start sending out receivers. How did that process work? So after the media coverage there was a lot of people from all around the world contacting us both to get the software so they could share the soft, share the data with us or or to get a, a free receiver. So we were sending out quite small amount of receivers back then, during 2010-11. And then in 2012, we decided to, to separate the two companies, the price comparison and, and uh, flight tracking, and put the flight tracking in a separate company. And that's when we really started to, to focus on, on the flight tracking and sending out big numbers of receivers. So I think... When we started in, in 2012, we had like four or 500 receivers. And 
just in one year we we grew to I think three four thousand. So so yeah, really big increase in numbers started in two thousand twelve. And now we're we're up over sixteen thousand receivers in, yeah. in total between the the ones <clears throat> that Flight Radar twenty four sends out in complete kits and, and the ones that people can build at home with their own antennas and, and share the data. And, and so now it's almost, you know, a global network yeah. from, you know, showing a thousand planes over Europe in, in 2010 to showing, you know, 16,000, 17,000 flights globally. So that's, that's a, a pretty big growth. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Yeah, and you. we really appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks. Should we talk about how we got here? I, f- I feel like we actually flew on airplanes. We did fly place, on airplanes. And, and we, we should talk about that. Okay. I feel like. We should. Yeah. You go first. Well, I flew direct Chicago. Nonstop. Nonstop. Directly nonstop. Yeah. There you go. Direct I invented a new term. Nonstop from Chicago to Stockholm aboard SAS on their A330 342 ton oh, maximum one of the takeoff new weight. Nice. Yes. Not yes. that there's any difference on the inside, but you could haul more stuff. You can haul more stuff. That's good. I, I brought more popcorn. deep dish pizza. And popcorn. Yes. So, yeah, no, it was a, a great fl- quick flight. Seven hours. That's quick. Seven hours from Chicago to Stockholm. That's very quick. We had good wind. You'd kind of rather the flight be longer so you can get some sleep, but you didn't sleep anyway. Good I didn't point. sleep anyway. I've, I've never been able to, to really get good sleep on a plane. So it was, I was glad that the flight was quick. And, and But you... Had more of an adventure. Yeah. This is my first time flying Norwegian. I was flying also JFK in New York to Stockholm directly nonstop, as we're calling it now. (laughs) Unfortunately, our inbound aircraft was about two hours late taking off from Stockholm. It also came from Stockholm. And then by the time it got to JFK, it had missed its gate assignment at Terminal 1, because it's always a disaster at that terminal. So they they shushed it off to the cargo complex for about an hour or maybe an hour and a half. And by the time we actually boarded my flight that was supposed to depart at 1030, it was more like 1 a.m. And that was kind of sucky. And because Norwegian schedules such tight turns, that aircraft three days later is still running almost two hours behind. So it still hasn't caught up. It's been since that time, it's been Stockholm, JFK, Stockholm, JFK, London, JFK, and I think there was actually Bangkok in there somewhere in the mix. So the plane's been all over the world, still late, but flew up in premium, which is pretty good, actually. It was impressively nice, a nice deep reclining seat, decent entertainment, okay fight crew. I would do it again. I just wish it wasn't, you know, serving dinner at two in the morning. Three hours late. Yeah, could have done without that. Just late enough to be annoying, but not late enough where I could get EU compensation out of them. Damn. Boo. I know, right? Why even be late at that point? <laughs> exactly. Let's take another quick break, and we'll bring in Sean Atkinson to discuss a bit more in depth how Flight Radar 24 works and what goes into getting the data from the aircraft to your screen. We are back sitting here with Sean Atkinson, the chief technology officer here at Flight Radar 24. And what we wanted to do is sit down and talk a little bit more about how Flight Radar 24 works. You can go on the website and go to the How It Works page to get kind of a a basic overview. But we wanted to dig into 
some of the technology and some of the numbers and and some of the, the processes behind that basic how it works. So, Sean, thanks for for joining the podcast and thanks for talking today. Great to be here. So, we've got basically this network of receivers all around the world and they're seeing aircraft radio signals. And so tell us a little bit more about what those receivers are doing and how that begins the process of of transferring aircraft positions from the aircraft to Flight Radar 24 web app, partner feeds, and, and things like that. Sure. So the How It Works page is probably a good place to start. That'll give you some of the terminology that we're going to refer to here. But in essence, we have both our own hosted receivers where we control the hardware that's supplied to us and software that runs on it. This is a little ARM CPU basically running Linux, very small and low power, but it does the job and you connect your power and antenna and GPS into that. Plus we have a network of volunteer hardware, so that's different hardware similar to what we ship but running its own software typically and together these flight radar own hardware and the volunteer feeders as we call them combined to give us a network of well over 10,000 receivers around the world. They're receiving broadcasts on the 1090 megahertz frequency that's reserved for usage in MODES and ADSB, And that includes regular updates from suitable aircraft equipped with the ADSB transponders several times a second down to our ground stations. This includes the unique identifier for an aircraft, which is the 24-bit ICAO address. And from that, we can map this onto a set of properties for that aircraft in a database that we maintain. We also get... So let, let me just jump in for, for sure. anyone who, who doesn't know what the, the hex address is. So each aircraft's transponder is programmed with what we call the MODAS hex address. And that's a unique identifier to the transponder across any aircraft. Correct, globally. And those numbers are assigned through ICAO, and you can map these down to almost a single aircraft. Well, you can map them down to a single aircraft, but in general, you can map a country code based on the hex address, how ICAO blocks them out. That's correct. It varies a little bit per country, but yeah, we can among the information we can extract from these addresses is including the country that it originates from. So each transponder, basically, is mapped so we know exactly which aircraft that transponder belongs to. Absolutely. And in addition to that unique identifier, which lets us map things like the tail number or registration and the model code so we can tell what type of aircraft it is, that's all maintained in the mapping of our database from these addresses onto the information for that aircraft. Pilots are also punching in a call sign that's transmitted to us, which we can probably talk a bit about later, but that for the common case, that would indicate the airline code at the beginning, for example, BAW for British Airways, and then a numeric suffix 1234 for flight 1234. But unfortunately, life's not always that simple to map onto onto the flight numbers. But that's one way that we can identify what route this aircraft is actually taking, because that information is not directly transmitted to us. We get the speed, we get the altitude, the heading, and what's called a squawk code, which is used for the local ATCs but we do not get the route or the flight number directly. So there's different bits of information that come directly from the aircraft via the ADSB signal. And then what we're doing is synthesizing that information with outside sources and our own historic database to provide a bit more information. 
because when you look at an aircraft from the ADSB, the, the aircraft's not telling you where it's coming from or going to. That's information that, that we have to kind of put together. So how does that kind of go about? Right. So that can get a little bit complicated because we might not have full coverage over the entire duration of the, of the flight's route. Normally we do over Europe, for example, we would have coverage down to ground at both the originating and destination airport. But if we don't, then we have less information to go on. So if we got the takeoff event at low altitude from the originating airport, that's a very big hint. I mean, that combined with the call sign can give you a very big clue as to what flight number is being operated. We can also include information like the tail number that can be supplied to us from third parties. Like you mentioned, the history, sometimes the history can be useful. But there are some very, very complicated cases where the call sign's got, frankly, very little to do, obviously, with the flight number. And so we have to do some pretty sophisticated processing to to figure out what flight this is. So we can address the, the call sign for a bit because we actually got a question about this on Twitter last week where the call sign's look like a random assortment of numbers and letters, and they have absolutely no bearing on on a flight number. So we'll stick with British Airways just for an example. British Airways could have a call sign BAW48C, for instance. And that could map to British Airways Flight 2322. Absolutely. But hopefully what we could do is look at the recent call sign history of if that flight had been operated in the previous days or weeks, we can look up that history and see the pattern of which flight number is being associated with that call sign. And that's one of the ways that that things get matched and, and through outside data sources or things like that. So we've got all of this data and how quickly is it moving? Like how much data are we are we really talking about? I mean that's it seems that I mean if you look we're we're tracking between eight and, and eighteen thousand flights, you know, at any one time. You look at the screen and it's it's full of planes. So what level of data are we processing? Yeah, okay. So that kind of varies. Going into the receiver is the, the very highest rate. It depends a little bit what the ground stations are querying from the aircraft because we only see the aircraft responses. But, I mean, over, over busy areas such as Europe, there will be multiple updates per second coming in from every aircraft into the receivers that are within its visible range. And that range is several hundred kilometers. So it can be quite a lot of data coming through into an individual receiver, multiple frames per second. But in order to not use a lot of the bandwidth of our hosts and stop them having normal internet access on on that shared line, we back off to around updates every five seconds. So we batch all of the aircraft that can be seen by a given receiver being sent into our data center around every five seconds or so. And it's it's at that stage that we would then remove the duplicates and take the preferred data out of the set of receivers that are seeing any aircraft. And the way that we would choose that preference would be, like I mentioned before, trusting our own hardware as a priority over third parties, and in particular our own software, actually. Because, for example, we find that other software can drift in its time source. It might not have the the most accurate time source from the hardware or have another software bug. And so wherever we have control of that hardware and software on our own receivers, we would tend to prioritize that as being the more accurate and authentic location for the aircraft. So I guess the last thing that I want to talk about today is we've covered numbers coming in. What about numbers going out? How much data are we talking about being pushed to the site and, and being pushed out you know, saved into, you know, our, our global history or data pages. I mean, the, the numbers to me 
seem incredible. Right. It kind of depends how you slice things up. So I mentioned that we back off the, the data rate coming in. So once we've reduced the rate coming out of each receiver to, to this kind of five-second batch, that adds up to around 100,000 positions every second coming into our data center. And we can write almost all of that out if people demand it. So, for example, over the European region with what we're calling enhanced data that has some of the extended fields in ADSB for customers interested in extra fields such as wind and, and some, some additional things that might not be available for free on the public site, that's compressing for the European region to over 100 gigabytes per month. So that's a fair bit of data. On the global playback, without all of these additions for very, very high frequency and extra enhanced fields in addition to the standard ADSB, we're writing about 100 gigabytes per month into global history. I mean, to me, that's, that it's an incredible number of planes, and it's an incredible amount of data to just, just move around and store. And the fun thing is, is it keeps growing. Indeed. I mean, it it varies seasonally a bit through the year, but yeah, year on year at least, it's been growing. As as coverage grows, the the amount of data grows. Absolutely, yeah. Well, then we've got some some growth to to continue with. And Sean, I want to thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk with us today. Thanks very much. So let's close out the show with a couple quick updates. And I think the most important update we've ever issued is Uh-oh. the launch of June. June. Everyone's most favorite rooftop bar. and My and, favorite state of mind. Yeah, state of mind. Definitely not an airline. Not an No, it's also an airline. Is it though? Well, that's what the website says. Oh, it is now. Yeah. I guess as of last week it is. So an it's it's also an airline. So they they launched service from from Paris to Barcelona, Lisbon and Berlin. Berlin. So they they're getting started. They they have aircraft in paint. They have interiors which apparently are better than the Air France yeah, interiors. This, this is the the crazy thing. June is it's nothing more than an 17-year-old Air France A320 with a new coat of paint and a refurbished interior that the rest of Air France is getting just eventually. But it's ironic that the June aircraft have USB ports in every seat. They have streaming entertainment for free, which is nice. And these are things that Air France mainline, for the most part, does not have. And it's not like you really choose to fly June. If you're flying Air France and you want to go to Berlin, you fly on June. You don't have a choice. They have converted the entire route to this airline within an airline. Or if you want to fly Paris to Barcelona, too bad. You're flying June whether you want to or not if you're flying Air France. So it's not a state of mind. It's not a rooftop bar. It's, I don't know what it is because it's not a low-cost airline. There's nothing low-cost about it. The more I talk about it, the less I understand it. All right. Yeah. I, I don't I don't get it. <laughs> so how about this? If anyone thinks that they understand what June is, please by all means email us at podcast at fr24.com. The whole point we would love of, an explanation. of an airline within an airline is to reduce costs, but they haven't done that. If anything, they've increased costs. I I Well don't they have, but don't they have a different labor force in no. the cabin? I mean the the cabin crew maybe, but the pilots are no. Are, the pilots is him, but I think that's I think Air that's France where the pilots. cost is coming yeah, from. The cost reduction is coming from incremental at best, but the prices, the fares are not any cheaper in Air France. But 
The whole thing is bizarre. This is true. <laughs> it's a bizarre state of mind. Yes. Yeah, it, it's it's something. I mean, it's insanity is a state of mind, so. I can't argue with no. that. No. What does make sense, though, and what is much easier to understand, is the Operation Puerto Rico gift lift is underway. Many elves involved. Many elves involved. Tons and tons of toys going down. This is an update from, from our discussion with Seth in our last episode about what he's been working on with Operation Puerto Rico Carelift after Hurricane Maria and now Gift Lift for Christmas, bringing toys and, and gifts down to, to kids affected by Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. Spirit has flown two, I believe, of their four, I'm calling them Spirit Slays, but a- A320 is full of presents. And so that continues. We'll toss a link in the show notes in case it's something that, that you want to get involved in. It's certainly a worthy cause and in a way for for kids that have, you know, been affected by a hurricane to have a little bit of normalcy in their lives. So it, it's really cool to see Good that cause. so many people have stepped up in, in Florida and Spirit and, and Lufthansa Technique down in Aguadilla to play host to kind of distribution of these things. Yeah. Very cool and, and glad that things are going well. Good stuff. Well, you made it here, and how you're off tomorrow, how are you getting home? Tomorrow I'm flying through Oslo. I'm flying a, a 738 over to Oslo, and then again Norwegian out of there back to JFK. So hopefully everything goes a little bit smoother tomorrow. Hopefully, but if I'm getting on that same plane, G-C-K-N-Y, it's still, probably still going to be running two hours late. <laughs> so I'm not too hopeful. Well, we'll see how it goes, and, and we'll report back. <laughs> Episode 20, a special episode from Stockholm. We're going to go do some more Stockholmy things, I guess. I thought you mean get a burger and have lunch. There you go. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back in a couple weeks with episode 21. Back from Jason in New York, we think, maybe. Maybe. Me in Chicago, and we'll talk to you then. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks. Thanks.